This is the multi-sport podcast for triathletes, duathletes, sportive riders, road racers, time trialists, runners, mountain bikers and fitness enthusiasts. Whatever your distance and whatever your event, this podcast aims to make you smarter and faster. is March 27th, 2014. We're in Mallorca. This is the bike week and we're going to do a different theme for this month's podcast. There'll be random questions. The person will introduce their name, then they give a question and I've got to answer those questions as best I can based uh, straight off the hoof. So here comes the first question. Hi Joe. my name's Samantha Topkin, I'm a member of uh, Team Tri-Sports Triathlon Club that's based in Hitchin. Okay. My question for you today is... This feels like Gardner's question time, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, because I okay. don't um, What strength exercises would you recommend that are triathlon specific? Right, so strength exercises. I think with strength training, you've got to commit to it as a form of training. What you can't do is do some strength exercises for a short period of time and just sort of think that they'll fix any imbalances or any discrepancies in training. So strength training should be considered as part of start out, say, September, October time and see it that the winter's the time to put time into strength work, ideally. I know people are listening to this in March, April time. But if you start September, October, you can put time into going to the gym and start the process. Okay, so that means you can start a base of training in the gym. When we get to this part of the year, sometimes what happens is people will want to jump in at the strength training but want to do it quite hard. And if they haven't done previous strength training, then uh, they've got two mindsets. One is I've got to build my base of strength. But at the other time, uh, sorry, the other themes in a training is to be developmental. So they've got these two things going on. So I think A, start early. B, look at the muscles that you use in those exercises. So uh, I guess the classic swim exercises are to do the lat pull downs, tricep kickbacks, and something, some kind of uh, press or pull action of which there's a variety. On the bike, the leg press and or squat are the best ones because they dominate with the, the quads doing the exercise. And on the run, calf raises, hip flexor work, also dumbbell work, swinging the arms to get the arms feeling stronger than they do when they run. Okay, when you run, there's nothing in your arms. If you can actually use your arms with dumbbells for, say, 30 seconds a minute at a time, when you're running, your arms feel like they've got that strength in that movement pattern. And therefore, when you run, you don't notice your arms are actually even doing anything. Start very easy with exercises around 12 to 15 reps and you could do more. Then gradually make the second set harder, going to 12 reps where you can't do number 13, eventually going to 10 reps where you can't do number 11 and ultimately going to eight reps where number nine doesn't happen. So if you do say the first set of 12 is a warm up level of effort, second set, eight reps and number nine cannot happen whatever you try and do. So that's two sets and you're done. On to the next exercise and move it around so you maybe start with a swim exercise, 
then a bike exercise, then a run, then a swim, then a bike, then a run. So you, what you're trying to do is not hit the muscle group too many times and not hit one set of muscles and then immediately hit them again with a different exercise. And that should be done in about 40 to 60 minutes and that's it, you're done. But you've got to obviously devote that one hour with all the other things you're trying to do. And sometimes at this point in the season, it's better that people continue and maybe start weights on a very low level but if they can't do that, they cannot go into the gym and take it easy, then just say, don't start until you get to the end of your season. And in September, October time, start a very slow but methodical build through next season's sort of off season, looking to peak in strength, probably, probably any time from about February to May as your peak strength exercises. Once you're in the season, you don't want to do too hard a strength exercise and then find that your key swim, bike and run exercises, perhaps intervals, high speed work, are affected by the weight. So you've still got to plan when you put them in the week. And I think it's, it takes quite a bit of work to get that right. And therefore, I think giving yourself time and not just throwing in strength work into the mix. We're now pre-competition phase. People are starting to do a bit of speed work, maybe starting to do longer um, sessions for half Ironman and Ironman. And if you then throw in this new theme of strength work as well, you can just completely throw your body into disarray. So I think you've got to plan it. You've got to be methodical. You've got to write it down. And each week you've got to add a little bit on to something in that session to make it progressively harder. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank okay. You very much. Okay. Hi, Joe. Hello. Paul Dutton, Team Transports, like Sam. Okay. Question. One of the things you said at the beginning of the training camp yeah. was to eat properly um, and use the training camp to get a training effect and improvement rather than diet. Is it uh, generally a choice of either or, or is there some, some combination where you can do both? Do you mean reduce your calorie intake below what you need and at the same time recover enough? And, yeah? yeah, and get a training effect in terms of increasing endurance or speed, for instance. I think it's difficult for people that are trying to juggle their training and their work because ultimately your training takes a small amount of time and your working day takes a lot more time. If you train and your energy levels start to drop, then your your breadwinner, your work, mm. starts to be affected by the fact your concentration, your motivation, uh, even your ability to get through the day and not be uh, irritated by everything can start to be really challenged when you reduce your calorie intake. So it's quite difficult to juggle doing weight loss and at the same time trying to ramp your training up, especially as now we're entering, for most people, with more daylight, with a sense that the season's coming up, that they want to at least start progressing in some way. Maybe sessions just get a bit harder or some of the sessions get longer. If you then mix into that a calorie deficit on a daily or weekly basis, that can be quite hard because you've got, you've got in a sense, you're trying, well, you're starting to challenge your body, but you're saying, I'm not going to give it quite enough energy. Yeah. In the sessions, that doesn't make sense. So sessions really should be fueled correctly, even if you are trying to lose weight, is actually the calories elsewhere in the day and saying, well, perhaps I'm taking snacks that I don't need or I need to just make, um, if you like, a list of what I am eating and then see whether there's bits that could be taken out without having a massive calorie deficit. But if you try and reduce weight by taking the calories out from the training itself, then you just notice that that session 
all it does is make you uh, either eat more and therefore totally that diet goes out the window because you just say, I can't, I can't uh, reduce my calories, I feel too tired. So you keep the calories up in the session, but you look for random or junk calories elsewhere and say, actually, I don't need that um, big last hot chocolate before I go to bed, I can actually get rid of that. Or actually, there's a couple of chocolate bars that randomly seem to happen in each day that if I throw them out, there's a 300 calorie deficit that I'm looking for. But in the training sessions, especially with people doing longer sessions or races, if you take the calories out from there, unfortunately, your body will look for it elsewhere. So it will find that it makes it almost impossible to keep on a diet because you're so hungry after that training, you cannot then keep your calories in line. And it's been shown with studies that if you take people, you exercise them, then you give them free reign with food. The ones that take a small amount of carbohydrate in their training will eat less afterwards. People that are on water will end up eating more afterwards. So in the end, the body knows and it's very smart. It's saying, look, you've made a deficit. You're just going to pay it back now. And for people to sort of enjoy things, they don't want to take calories out of training and feel quite miserable and at the same time after training say well I can't really eat much because I'm trying to lose weight. It's a really difficult balancing act and ultimately you've got a greater capacity to burn calories than you have to take calories away. So as long as you keep your training going and we move into the, the sort of phase of more salads, less comfort foods, more sense of I want to feel more energetic and I want to you know trim down for the season it just becomes easier for people at this stage to lose weight in the off season most people put a bit on but now it's easier to say well I need to fuel my training but if I go for lighter calorie options in the rest of my day there will be a deficit and the more days I can keep that up and I feel still energized in my training the better that that long-term weight loss will actually take hold Thanks, Joe. Okay. Have you got part two? Because you've got a list there. I've got a list there. Would you want right. to go with another? Okay. Number two, then. Number two. There's been quite a bit, quite a bit in the uh, training magazines about um, the high-intensity interval set training sessions. Yeah. Um, what do you think of those, and how do they compare with zone one training? Oh, they're absolutely part of the, the bigger model, but they're not instead of everything else. There are people that are trying to see how much minimum amount of high intensity exercise can you do to create a fitness gain but most people that need to be fitter will not do super high intensity sessions even if they are only you know 40 seconds flat out three times a week they don't do exercise even if it's enjoyable and low intensity so we can't see that as the way to get people that aren't into fitness to somehow say great i can do a super high intensity session three times a week and that will help me stay fit they don't like exercise as it is so we must make it easy for them to do it for those that are endurance based that want to get that extra few percent, they are part of the bigger picture, which would be deemed either 80-20 or 90-10. 80 to 90% of your training is base work, and maybe 10% or a bit more is high intensity. So it fits in, and there are perhaps things like six lots of four minutes at close to your best effort with two minutes recovery. If you do that once or twice a week, you will gain fitness, but it won't make up for the fact you haven't put the other hours in. So I think there are people looking for super high intensity to make up for the fact that people haven't got enough time to train. And if they haven't got enough time to train, sorry, you can't put a quart into a pint pot. It won't fit. So you have to take your hours, times it by 0.8 or even 0.9. That's your base work. That's your technique. That's your fun sessions. That's your endurance sessions. The last 10% is your high intensity. 
But I would argue that when you look at most age group athletes across sporties, triathlons and so on, most of the time it's random training. They feel good, they do a bit of high intensity, they are out training and they see somebody, they do a bit of high intensity. Um, they have a session where it was meant to be easy, but they're in a rush, so they do some high intensity, and it isn't planned. Therefore, they do high intensity already. So these high intensity sessions that are being talked about, in some ways, are already being done, and they're not a magic pill. They're just part of, look, we need some high intensity here and some, some low intensity here, but most people need to actually do the low intensity correctly and then pick the days where they do the high intensity. And high intensity is proper high intensity. It's not sort of, oh, well, that was quite sort of hard work, but I didn't really push myself. It's, it's really hard work. It's your best effort for around, say, four minutes, two minutes off, and repeat it again and again and again and again. Not just once off. You've got to do, I would say, something like 20 to 30 minutes of very hard work, and that's it. But that means the next day is very easy. It might be a technique swim if you're a triathlete. It might be um, a flat uh, ride if you're a cyclist. It might be a very easy run if you're a runner. But it's getting that split. It's making sure the high intensity is done properly hard and the low intensity is done easy. And if you don't want to be competitive or you don't feel like high intensity work is something you need to do, then just ignore it. Because you'll still be fit by doing the low intensity. You just maybe won't be competitively fit. You'll have good control of blood pressure. You can still have weight loss. You can still enjoy exercise. But that last sort of icing on the cake gives people about 10%. But that's a small amount, really. Because that means zone one training will give you 90% of whatever your ability is. And that last bit cannot be seen as, well, look, if we haven't got the time, let's just go straight to the icing on the cake instead of we need to build fitness and actually if you don't want to do a high intensity just enjoy the fitness stuff just keep yourself regular keep yourself enjoying the exercise and actually that will give you a lot of your um, basis on which you could then say well, actually I'm enjoying it so much I now want to do some competitions or I'm enjoying it and actually that high intensity never sits well with me so I just enjoy it and actually I still get a lot out of what I do does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and it is. There, there was a recent paper on how do you, what is the puzzle of high intensity exercise and how do you mix it in? And it's been seen as yes, there's a small amount of high intensity that's needed, but it cannot be seen as, you know, let's condense it down to three days a week, super high intensity, and forget doing anything the rest of the days. That just unfortunately falls flat on its face and is not really what the analysis of good athletes across age group level professional level or even just good competitive um sort of club level that's not what they do so it's not seen as something that we should always be aiming for high intensity all the time most people it's keep the effort down enjoy that process and don't think there's a secret you know secret uh, way to get better actually high intensity will give you the last 10 percent, but modest intensity will give you the other 90 percent thanks Joe. Okay? yeah okay Okay, next question. Okay, hi Joe. Hi. My name is Jarmo, coming from Finland, and yep. uh, Helsinki Triathlon is my club. Okay. So my question is about recovery. Yeah. How to measure it without any fancy equipment? Right. Okay. So no, no fancy new equipment. monitors and so yes. on. Okay. So I think with recovery, it's a, it's the flip side of training, and people don't you know they look at their training programs they look at their training diary they don't look at their recovery 
diary, the recovery methods. You can do all the training you like. If you don't put effort into monitoring and thinking about recovery, then it is very possible for people to just train themselves, not even better, to train themselves worse. So I think recovery has to be thought of as the bigger picture is your performance is training plus recovery. So it's a good question because too many people think about their training and don't ever think, actually, am I even recovering from what I'm doing? Because it's very possible to train so hard that you create such a big deficit in the body that you're looking to recover maybe 10 days or, or two or three weeks time by the time you've got over what you've just done. So I think you have to firstly start with recovery as part of what you plan. Do you, do you plan for recovery days? Have you got recovery methods like uh, massage, um, hot tubs, um, deep plunge pools, um, Bowen therapy, uh, easy days with people that are perhaps below your level but you have fun training without pushing yourself? If you've got those in there, straight away you're giving your body the chance within each seven-day cycle to have some let-up. Because there are people that look at every day as a way of pushing forwards and not realising that sometimes you've got to ease off. How you measure it is very difficult. But if you take it into account, firstly, there's a chance you're thinking about recovery. And I think you measure it possibly through resting heart rate though people can have low resting heart rates and actually they're really tired, they're not recovering, but they look at their heart rate and think, oh, it must be great, I've still got a low heart rate. It's possible to have a very low heart rate because you're tired. Um, you might be well, but you're tired. Um, when people are unwell, that's when resting heart rate starts to go up. So you can have an athlete with a low resting heart rate, but they're really tired. And I think it's better to look at actually what can you do in training. And it might be perhaps a set speed on a treadmill, a set wattage on an indoor bike at the gym, um, even a set of particular swim sets in a pool or something like that. And say, if I cannot do them or I do them and my heart rate is massively elevated, very suppressed, or in some way the perception is not right, it's taken me a lot of work to do something that must be really easy normally, then you're starting to say, your body's not recovering. Because if people do, say, um, a normal route that they cycle, and it's the same speed, but it feels really hard work, then you can argue that person might be fit, but they're not recovering. So we have to look at somehow measuring within your week a set session and saying, how does that feel? Because it should be easy, and if it's not easy, then they might not be um, recovering because of their work is suddenly taking more hours in the day, um, their sleep is interrupted, um, they're traveling a lot, and therefore their body is just all over the place. So we can also look at recovery and say, is the environment in which you're currently training and trying to recover, is it normal? Because if it's not, and there's totally new factors thrown in, you're not going to recover like you normally do. Therefore, you should be looking for, hold on a minute, lots of things are going on at the moment. Even if I do what I normally do, I'm probably not going to recover. And I think people have to be receptive not to how many hours have I done or did I just about scrape through the week. They've got to look at, do I start from time to time, every perhaps five or ten days, do I get a sense that I'm getting stronger because people can be logging hours and miles and sessions and actually just right back to square one. They're not actually improving. They're just pushing so much training through their body and it's not getting better. Give them several days of reduced training load. Give them time to chill out. Lo and behold, 
they start getting better. And that time frame is a difficult one to work out. How many days can you train and how many days do you need to recover? Most people can work on at least two or three weeks of solid training and then a week devoted to recovery. Reduce the sessions, reduce the intensity, have more days off. Generally look at just trying to treat your body with a bit of TLC, as we call tender loving care, TLC. Lo and behold, out the other end comes a fitter person. Because if you're putting training in, out the other end eventually will come a better athlete. Um, not a superhuman one. Um, most people, if we measure them, we can predict what they're capable of. But it's still possible to take somebody and to overtrain them and to have them worse at the end of the day. And I think the area of recovery is being seen as one of these central themes because lots of people know how to train. What they don't know how to do is to adjust that training and adjust their recovery to take up the slack when life changes, when, I don't know, they've, they've got a new baby or a new job or they've moved continents or they've moved in their business and it's now more stress. And therefore, training could stay the same but it probably needs to adapt. Recovery might have to be even more important. And then notice every few days, am I actually on top of this or I'm just making myself more tired, more irritable, um, more, you know, more sort of going backwards than going forwards. And people that are good at the various sports, be they endurance sports like you know, cross-country skiing, running, mountain biking, cycling, the, the works, they're good at listening to their body and sensing when they need to back off. And they'll back off for a few days, go back into a session, test their body and say, I've recovered. The ones that don't get it will just keep pushing, training harder and wondering when is that better body gonna pop out the other end when they keep training. And ultimately, the better body equals training plus recovery. And I think if, if there were one thing I'd say to people is to look at their training and monitor it, but also look at what things you're doing to your body to allow it to recover. Are you saying I'm going to put you know, one hour's um, training aside, not to train, but to get a massage, to actually just lie down and have somebody rub various muscles, zonk out and see how I feel the next day? Or one hour of just very easy cycling with somebody that's less fit, but it's good fun. And, and think about that in the bigger picture, not how many more training sessions can I do? Not, oh, well, my heart rate's low, but I feel tired when I'm training. But actually, after I've warmed up, it feels good because that's the common thing. Oh, I felt really tired, but oh, once I got into the session, I felt okay. And that's the endorphins. That's the sense that the fatigue you feel is being covered up, really. And actually, in the session, everything feels hard. A normal workload feels hard. The training a few hours later feels harder than it should do. And I think we have to be, you know, listen to your body is a theme that people talk about. But when they do it, I think they would, they would change their methods drastically because they'd realize there's only so much training you can put in. If you undertrain a tiny bit, you'll always be better than if you overtrain a tiny bit because you can at least be on top of that. And when it comes to races, that's when you want to pull that extra bit out of the bag. Because what happens one day, two days, or five days after a race is irrelevant. It's that you're fresh enough on race day to actually be, be ready to you know, give your best. And sometimes I'll get people in what I would call an adaptation week to just really think about it as a sort of taper week. Back right off, just do less sessions, and see how you feel by the end of that week. Don't use it up and suddenly bash yourself because you felt good by four days into that week. Just allow yourself to feel good 
and then start the next three weeks of training saying, wow, I feel good at the moment. I'm going to start training really well for the next three weeks. And, and that's difficult because that means you have to plan to take seven days where you won't do as much as you normally do, where you won't you know, go as long, go as hard, or even train as often as you normally will. You'll actually pull it back, trim it down to the minimum, and lo and behold, you'll probably feel better. Um, it won't change your genetic ability. It won't make you worse. It'll just make you better for the next three weeks. But overtraining is so problematic that the recovery theme that you're sort of looking for is often not even thought about. It's how much more training can I do? Not, shall I have a week of taking it easy now? And when most people have done this camp, they'll probably do 15, 18, 20 plus hours. Next week is easy. I mean, next week, the last thing you should be doing is thinking, I've got to do this session, this session, this session. It'd probably take you three or four days just to feel how tired you are. Then to gradually get back into training and then to notice in a week's time, you're just starting to feel the benefit of what you're doing day in, day out here. So it's a, it's a good one because it's, it's not about training. It's about your recovery. And I think there are you know, great devices now starting to see um, how can we monitor somebody's recovery but they're expensive, they're quite new, and actually a lot of this is common sense. It's about listening to your body, and if people start saying, you're really irritable at the moment, you really are not the person that you were a week ago, this training that you're on at the moment needs to be dampened down, you know straight away that somebody else is looking after your recovery by telling you you need to ease it up. And most of the time, we're nearer to our best than we'd like to think, and therefore training even harder won't won't add you know another 10% on this idea you can train at 110% is absolutely ludicrous we all have a glass ceiling and it's up there but it's pointless for us to be um, if you like underdeveloped by the fact we've got too tired or we lose motivation long before we get to our key events so I think we have to just you know look at the long game think about things long term and say look as long as I'm training and recovering I'll get to where my you know genetic limit is but I won't break myself along the way and therefore it will be more fun because um, like Paul's question earlier about the kind of high intensity there's only so much that we can push through our genetics and actually we can probably measure it already who's going to be where in the pecking order but many people break themselves and lose lose the love they have for endurance sports by the fact that they just make it almost like a second job you know they pummel themselves to no real ends, you cannot push a body harder than it's genetically capable of. And it's much better to get to the race, think, at least I'm not tired, at least I'm motivated. And you know what? What I've done so far is just going to give me an idea of how I'll race. But when it comes to race, you bring out that last 5%. You sort of push yourself the extra bit. Not one month and two months and six months before when you get to the race and think, I'm, I'm toast. I really don't. I really don't want to be here. Or I'm toast halfway through a season. Or I'm toast just before my big race. So I think listen to your body, see what factors for you tell you that you're tired, and then look at recovery methods. You know, look at things like massage, easy days, days off, easy weeks, um, and and plan that into your training. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay, next question is from David, David Lane, um, creatine monohydrate. Okay. How is it beneficial to an endurance athlete? And is uh -huh. there any danger of loading up with fluid and getting bloated and 
putting on okay. too much weight. So creatine monohydrate exists in your muscle naturally. Uh, the majority of research started in the early 90s. Uh, some of it was almost like an accidental finding. What had happened was there was, I don't know the exact uh, medical condition, but they were giving people creatine for an eye condition. And one of the people that they were giving this creatine to was a sprinter. And they noticed a performance increase and went, that's a funny finding. Looked into it, found that the creatine was the key high intensity um, energy liberator in the muscle. Lo and behold said, ah, we may be able to push more creatine into the muscle, therefore increase its power, increase its sprinting ability. So the loading studies in the early 90s found if you put creatine, uh, approximately five grams with 20 grams of sugar, you'll push that creatine into the muscle, you'll raise your creatine levels, and for sprinters and for people doing resistance training, you can up the power. Something around 10%. So there was a significant gain. And people, I remember um, testing it for 220 triathlon in the early 90s and in the swimming pool, was, was swimming away from people I should be swimming with and went, wow, this is something different. And the research tended to look at it and say, yes, there's something in this. Now, the flip side of that is that it can increase the mass of an athlete maybe a kilo or two it depends it depends how big that person is to start with whether they go on a really big loading phase for six days or whether they trickle it in over a month i think it's the missing factor to check upon by just loading for one month and seeing if your body uptakes it we don't know what you've got in your muscles at the moment you may go on creatine and notice no difference whatsoever you may go on it and say wow I'm pushing out another 20 watts without even trying. I'm recovering better. Low intensity and high intensity exercise just got easier. Creatine is still a major, uh, if you like, a major part of the network that energy has to go through in order to get your muscles to do something. So, so, so that's benefiting high, high end power. Yes. What about endurance as well? Is there any, any difference on, on endurance or not really? Um, it's not directly shown to improve endurance, but if, you're, if you look at endurance and you say take an Olympic distance event, your endurance capacity to do that with training, knowing that you've done that sort of distance, it's not about now can you get from this point to this point, it's how much power can you produce in that amount of time, and therefore it's more of a power-based equation, not can you get from the beginning of the swim to the end of the run. It's can you put out more power across those individual swim bike runs in order to improve your speed. And I would suggest that for a lot of athletes, particularly if they're not eating massive uh, amounts of raw red meat on a regular basis, that creatine is, a, um, is not an automatic thing that's in your diet. And so people load up on it and they either respond and say, wow, I feel really strong, or they just say, I didn't really notice it and uh, maybe I just am a non-responder, maybe my muscles are already at, at peak levels. But it helps weight training, so maybe off-season weight training gets stronger. Well, that equates to being better at endurance because your muscles can work at the same percentage of maximum, but now that, that has gone up, so you're now working at a higher level. And the slight increase of lean mass that you get, if you train at that higher level, that shouldn't make a difference. If you suddenly loaded just prior to a race, particularly a running race, it would affect your performance. And this was found in uh, 
cross-country runners. They did it with cross-country runners and found that they didn't improve their performance, but you wouldn't expect it to because they're a body mass over the floor and normally up and down. You wouldn't just load them up just before race and expect them to improve. You might do it in the off-season to get them stronger and then notice that as they get um, leaner and lighter for racing, they still hold that power. But you wouldn't load somebody up just prior to a race. It wouldn't make any sense because if the lean mass goes up, and they're running or doing anything that involves quite a lot of height gain, you actually have made them heavier. Though you've made them more powerful, you've made them heavier. So you probably trade those two things off and they don't notice a performance improvement. But you load up and you use the, com uh, the concept of suck it and see. You try. Because some people go, wow, that's phenomenal. And then they say, yes, I rarely eat red meat. Actually, I've been vegetarian for a few years. Actually... I've noticed a massive effect. Maybe I just respond to it. Maybe this is something that you, you're kind of putting a level playing field. You can't over respond to it. You can't put more in than your body will uptake. But if you've gradually worn the creatine levels down, if you take it back up again, you just notice you're strong, you recover well, and you just feel full of beans. So that could be, um, you know, a useful, it's still a useful tiny component. This isn't for the person that isn't training correctly in the right zones is looking for random things to make them improve. No, this is all part of the bigger, you know, ergogenics. This is one of those tiny ones that you add, but you don't add if you're not doing other things correctly. It's not a, it's not a secret bullet, but it may help some people. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Jay. Hello. I'm Rob, Rob Lyons from Trianglia, based yeah. in Norwich. I've done a few triathlons along the way, a few Ironmen, a few sportifs. Um, right. Follow the guidelines on at least a gram per kilo per hour. So I'll be very diligent. I'll set my alarm and I'll have a gel every 15 minutes on right. the long rides. Yeah. Um, I'll get to five hours, maybe six hours. And then my brain and my body just says, if you stick one more gel in me, I'll be sick. I'll be sick. You'll see it again. Yeah. But I keep forcing it in. I'm not sick. I keep forcing it in and I just feel not necessarily horrible, but it just doesn't feel like it's right. So am I taking too much? Because I'm, I am generally taking more than a gram, but it's sort of a gram and a half. Mm. Um, or is there a product out there that doesn't have the sweet, sickly stuff in it? Do I need to look at the sugar contents and the types of sugars that are in the particular products I'm using? I think there's a fair degree of experimentation that even if we've got a target of at least a gram per kilo, what that composes of is, is quite individual. Across Some people can literally take gels across the whole of a sporty for an Ironman and have no issues. They may have a, a different constitution. They may just be able to get over that nausea and just keep it going down. But what you don't want to do is create any situation where you start to vomit because that's the quickest way to dehydrate. Mm. And once that happens, you can forget about even getting anywhere near a PB and possibly the next thing you're going to know is somebody's sticking something in your arm and you're out for the count by the side of the road because you've just you've got rid of so much fluid and so much carbohydrate you start to do a rapid decline. I think training is the place where it starts first because you have to at least try different brands, different quantities, different dilution rates to just see do you need that gram per kilo but do you have to have at least say 800 mils of litre uh, so 800 millilitres per hour or is it that you need solids in order that your body digests something real and on top of that you add a gel or a sports drink so by solids that would be solids uh, that would be a bar, I mean, could be a, could be a, a bar it could be a sandwich um i'm not convinced about people eating bananas because 
they are great at making people fall asleep but they're not great at providing carbohydrates so there's got so to maybe be you need to have some caffeine in your banana caffeine in your banana <laughs> there's it's certainly certainly you know mini sandwiches and you know mini mini cakes and little bits of you know ham and cheese with a bit of bread and so forth that the i think the combination of foods are as varied as people's diet but you've got to try them in training because in races, if you know that you've got to have mini sandwiches, then you've got them in your back pocket or in your little bento box and you grab drinks and so forth. But you know that those are OK, but you need your mini sandwiches. And there are as many options that people have found works by the fact that they've tested them beforehand rather than they've tried to you know, automatically think, well, they're giving me gels and bars. I must eat their gels and bars. I think if you're self-contained totally you're missing the point you don't want to carry four bottles with you and loads of sandwiches and a and a you know a bum bag with all your food in you want the minimum amount you need versus what they can give you and some people get on with you know a little bit of chocolate at 80 kilometers into the bike just to give their brain a little bit of a a, a bit of a sort of a, almost like a treat but the digestion seems to be the problem. Even elite athletes have this plan, and when it goes wrong, that's when the race that everyone thought they were going to have doesn't happen. Um, and I don't know, you know the secret, but it's certainly trying it in training, having different options so that even on race day, you've got plan B. It can't be that you know plan B is just, oh, I'll go on to just water because that will eventually decline. And each person has, you know, a, a sweet tooth to a certain extent. And some people, it only lasts two or three hours. Other people, you can give them gels for hours and they'll take it. And maybe the specific sugars that you've had and the quantities have just been above your threshold. Because if you can only take in 0.75 grams, but keep it down and keep doing it, that'll be better because at least then you'll be digesting that. You might need to keep your pace slightly down because the less carbs you take in, the more you've got to watch your pace and your surges and your um, altitude gain because anything that goes onto high carbs is now going to put you in a good chance of blowing up. Um, but I think you have to experiment. And I think for each race that somebody does or seriously long session, they need to learn something because you only get so many chances to do that with which to then learn for the next one and the next one. It's when people just go with the same plan as before, thinking, I know I was sick last time, but I'll try it again just in case. And it's just like, no, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be sick. And there are um, a variety of products. The products just, you know, made from potatoes, made from barley, two-to-one fructose glucose, pure glucose polymers. There's just loads of variety. But go to a different brand, try it. Does it sit well? No, cross that one off. Is it the one that the race has got? Yes. Give it a try. Does it work? No. Okay, you've got to try plan B. So there's, there's kind of a ballpark, but I think it's hard for everybody to think they're just going to grab the gels and the drinks from the race organisers and hope, fingers crossed, it's going to stay down. And if you've been to that situation, you almost know that at five hours or four hours you're in that situation. That builds up a set of sort of preempts, you know, trepidation about, oh, I know what's happening soon. Is starting to back up. My stomach is starting to, you know, not work. And interestingly, what did I say to you today when we were out on the bike? I came up behind you and said, you've got, you've got a salt patch in your lower back of your shorts. I worked hard getting out that hill too. You worked hard, but it That's shows great. that you're losing a lot of sodium. And it may be that it's nothing to do with the quantity of carbs that you're getting across your gut. It's the fact that sodium losses are starting to affect your gut absorption. So you may need to actually go for 
um, gels or even drinks that have higher sodium in order to replace what you're losing. Because the moment that that balance in your gut and in your cells starts to go awry, you can throw as much food as you like in the gut, it will start to malfunction. And I'd suggest based on seeing that, because this wasn't a hot day today, if you get that much salt on the we're back of... We're lots of jackets, so... Yeah, I know, but even so, you know, that's, that's quite early on. If you were, you know, four hours in and I saw that, I'd be like, okay, but the fact that we were relatively short session in the big scheme of things, and you've got salt at the back, says to me that you lose sodium. That would suggest that it's not even your gut shutting down because of carbs, it's shutting down because of electrolyte losses. And therefore, you need to go for higher sodium intake, possibly you know, additional salt tabs or higher sodium gels and drinks and see whether you can keep the sodium content up, therefore allow your gut to function normally. Because if it doesn't function because of electrolytes, you can throw all the carbs you like in there and, and eat and drink all different combinations. It just stops acting as a membrane to let things through and you just start getting nauseous. And the next thing down your, your throat is actually going to come back up again. And I think People think about carbs as the main thing to focus on, but the electrolyte intake and losses must be rebalanced. So it might be a case of going and having your uh, electrolyte losses assessed, seeing whether you are losing a high amount of sodium, and in which case you need to put that into your nutrition in your race day and long training sessions because the sodium losses cannot be covered. Losses of carbohydrate can be covered by slowing down a bit and using slightly more fat, but once you start losing too much sodium and your gut stops working properly, you're in trouble. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So go off and look under, you know, salt, salt excretion measurement uh, labs and see who does it. There are various people that, that do okay. it. And then test whether you are losing a high amount of sodium, in which case you've got to go for high sodium intake. But of course, that's salt. Salt's a four-letter word. And the last thing people think of as athletes is they've got to put salt in everything and have high salt. But I think based on what I saw on the back of your salt, on the back of your shorts, <laughs> is that the salt losses are probably the biggest part of it. Because we were out for roughly three hours in total, and you're looking at this happening two hours after that or even three hours after that, at which point those losses could be starting to function, uh, affect your function in your gut, and then you're in trouble. Okay, I'll give that a go. Okay. Thank you.